Good day, everyone. This is March Twisdale, producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose, and I'd like to welcome you to my interview with James Lyons-Weiler, author of The Environmental and Genetic Causes of Autism. This book is currently number one on Amazon in the categories of autism, genetics, or toxicology, and it's around number 2,000 out of over 8 million books currently available on Amazon. Hello, uh, you told me to call you Jack, so Jack, how you doing today? I'm well, March. How are you? I'm, I'm doing pretty good. I'm, I'm super excited to be talking with you today. <clears throat> well, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time. For those folks who are joining us for the first time, you're listening to Prose Poetry and Purpose, recorded in the studios of Voice of Vashon, broadcast at 11 a.m. every Saturday and Sunday on 101.9 FM KVSH. You can also share this show with your friends online at voiceofvashon.org, or you can go to my website, marchtwisdale.com. It's right there on the home page. So now we're going to dive into the show. Jack, I'd like it if you could take just a brief minute to frame yourself a bit, um, tell my listeners who you are, and a little bit about what you do. Sure. I'm a research scientist by training, evolutionary biology and genetics. I'm an author of various books, one on Ebola, on biomedical research called Cures versus Profits, and the third one's on uh, autism. Uh, I'm also the CEO and director of the Institute for Pure and Applied Knowledge. It's a pure public charity research institute focused on reducing human pain and suffering through knowledge. Right. Okay. And I've got that website right here in front of me. So I'm going to say that again, the Institute for Pure and Applied Knowledge. You can find that, folks, at ipaknowledge.org. Now, we've already had our pre-chat, so I know a bit about this. Why don't you go ahead and give my listeners a sense of how they might interface with IPAC at some point or who might be, you know, the type of person that you would say, hey, we like what you're doing. We want to connect with you and work with you. Okay. So any uh, American citizen that's interested in having research done without profit motive, biomedical research, basic research, clinical research, we should take a look at what we're doing, how we're formulated, and why we exist. Our bylaws specifically forbid anyone that works at IPAC from having any personal financial interest in the outcome of the research that we do, which is extremely unique. It's not to say that everyone who does research with profit motive is necessarily you know, unable to be unbiased, but this bylaw enforces unbiasedness in the way that we look at our own research, and it allows us also to look at other people's research in a manner that is separate from the impact on our wallet. And right. that's very important to me because when I was graduate student doing research, my ultimate goal in research was just to know things. I was curious about nature, the way things worked, um, where we all came from, the big questions in life. And the, the trend seems to be if it's not profitable, we're not going to be able to do any research on it. It doesn't mean that we don't do research on things that could lead to profit for someone, but we're not interested in the profit ourselves. Right. So I'd say in 2017, um, there's a lot of people in America who have some concerns about how profit is corrupting or undermining you know, everything from how our political system works to how our universities are funded, you know, and all this. So you basically are trying to say, 
hey, if you want to invest in IPAC, you say to someone who's got some money they want to invest, you're like, hey, you can invest here, but we're going to make sure that you're investing because you support the goals of pursuing knowledge, not because you hope we're going to help out this company over here that you own stock in. Oh, right, right. So we, we, we don't take any money from the government. Uh, so far, we're involved in discussions on, on de- helping the government, you know, determine which direction research programs should go. But uh, we we exist on public donations. Mm-hmm. We have you know, a growing number of supporters. I'd say we have about 200 supporters so far. We're about a year old. Yeah, that's pretty good. Why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about the symposium up in Linwood, which is just north of Seattle, on Saturday. March 11th. Tell us a little bit about that symposium. Well, um, IPAC is hosting this symposium, so people can attend if they want to learn about immunity, the immune system, looking at genetics, epigenetics, environmental and nutritional factors, and uh, looking at immunization as a factor. You know, I'll be discussing the book, the 2000 research studies that I reviewed for the book, mm-hmm. but we also have uh, Professor Mary Holland from New York University. Uh, she's a human rights expert. She's given testimony at the United Nations on um, informed consent. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have Dr. Tatiana Obukognik, and she is going to be discussing the immune system, immunity, immunization, with a view on uh, health advocates and healthcare practitioners. And then we also have Dr. Jennifer Markulis, who just published a book with Dr. Paul Thomas called The Vaccine-Friendly Plan, and uh, she'll be discussing those alternatives. Right, right, right. So this is an event that's going to be interesting for a layperson, but also maybe for someone who's involved with the school system and they're having to deal with these questions that are coming up oftentimes around whether a child is allowed to be educated in the public schools or not, depending on what state they live in and the medical choices they've made, but also your medical doctor, you know, your friends who are curious about how they can be healthier and how the immune system can function better for them, but also deeper issues. So basically, this is pretty much for everyone. It's not like a scientist-only event. No, not at all. This is uh, how science is impacting society, uh, You know how it affects policies, how it affects people's lives, how medical practice affects people's lives. This will be on Saturday, March 11th mm-hmm. at the Embassy Suites in Linwood. Right. Uh, and they can register either at informedmedicine.wordpress.com or at ipaknowledge.org. Right, right. I'm looking at it right here. So when you go to ipaknowledge.org, it's called the Fully Informed Medicine, the Future of Immunity, Genetic and Environmental Factors. Yeah, I'm super excited. I'm looking forward to going up there. Yeah, it's going to be a great day. All right. Okay, so I'm going to come back to this a little bit later because I'm a little curious about sort of the inciting incident in your life and what got you going in this direction. But first, um, I want to touch in a little bit on the other two things we're going to discuss today. Um, Everyone in America is aware that there is a a question percolating in the air around us and some concerns that are not going away around whether our um, health is being impacted in unintended negative ways, because no one would do this on purpose, but in unintended negative ways by how we're currently using vaccine medicine. And so there's two other things we're going to talk about today. One of them is your book, which we'll get into next. But the third one is for people who aren't quite sure how to engage, we're going to come at this about how to 
take a compassionate approach in raising this question and having a, um, a relatively relaxed and caring conversation about it, letting go of the almost warlike, I can't talk about it, there's only right and wrong, black and white type of, of attitude that's been pushed upon the American people around what is basically a scientific question. So so for folks listening, those are the things coming at you for the rest of the show. And why don't we take a look real quick here at the book? Because, yes, you wrote other books. They look really interesting. But this one, talk about timely, The Environmental and Genetic Causes of Autism. So tell us a little bit about what caused you to want to write this book, as in do the research necessary to be able to write it. What happened in your life that brought this about? Well, I had written my first book on Ebola, and I was very concerned about the projected 20 million people that were supposed to have uh, contracted Ebola by January uh, 2014. And I found out through a colleague of mine at Yale University who redid the modeling that they did not consider that Ebola is transmitted in social networks. And so when they updated the models, everything, you know, could uh, be seen to be less dire than was was thought of. Um, And I learned in the process of all of my research for that book that they brought about the end of the transmission of Ebola in West Africa, in those three countries in West Africa, by inviting individuals to the field hospitals that they had set up as Ebola treatment units. Mm -hmm. Uh, Of course, immediately the beds were filled up, even though our government and the Chinese government and other governments and agencies had built out many Ebola treatment units. And so uh, people were invited, nevertheless, still to come, and they were put in these triage units. Uh, The triage units turned out to be just, you know, deplorably filthy, terrible places to go. So my estimates are that half of the people that went there uh, that didn't have Ebola infection became infected by going seeking medical care. Right. Uh, and, And it was just a very disturbing realization uh, that the people were sequestered away from the rest of the population with the promise of health care. Mm-hmm. And, and so I decided to explore more of the successes in biomedical research to kind of study in more depth all of the facets of biomedical research that originally got me excited. And I wrote this book called Cures Versus Profits. And uh, when I sent the manuscript and, and to the publisher, although the book had chapters on breast cancer and why we know breast cancer receptors are informative on chemo treatments uh, and prostate uh, cancer surgery. Uh, and it's very many, many different topics. The publisher asked me to add another chapter. And so I decided to write a chapter on vaccines. Mm-hmm. And that I had never really critically evaluated vaccines. I spaced vaccines out for my own sons because uh, it seemed like the smart thing to do. These are little kids and why I dose them unnecessarily mm-hmm. um, space them out without any feedback without any negative feedback from the from the pediatricians and now there's you know 17 and 15 but uh, in writing that chapter I actually began for the first time in my life to research the science of vaccination the science of immunization using vaccines and I ran smack dab into the CDC whistleblower story right. uh, of dr. William Thompson so let's let's pause for half a second so This is a story that has generally almost completely been blacked out by American media. So most people listening right now have probably not heard his name and don't quite know about what has happened. However, 
it's like completely there. The information's all there. It's just not being sent out in the normal televised media ways. So do you want to come back to that in a few minutes, or do you want to take a second right now to explain that since you're referencing it? Well, what I can reference is the chapter itself, uh, because, you know, rather than go over the whole William Thompson, CDC whistleblower right. story, yeah. um, I just want to say that I made a promise to myself in writing the second book that whatever I found good, bad, or indifferent uh, on biomedical procedures and biomedical practice, I would I would be faithful to objectivity and include the whole story. Mm-hmm. And so the chapter itself starts out reading like, you know, an advertisement for vaccines about how wonderful they are and how they save so many lives. But then I was curious about this problem at the CDC. Why would they remove results from a study showing that getting the on-time MMR vaccine caused an increase in the risk of of ASD diagnosis in people in the study that had no other reason to have autism than the vaccine and African-American males. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I wrote the book, I published the book, uh, sent the man, final manuscript in. I was happy that I had stayed true to myself. And then uh, the movie Vaxxed uh, came out. I learned about it after I finished my manuscript, which uh, then allowed me to, you know, really see the full story. Right. Right, because they had, they, had, uh, they had additional information in there. All right, right. Okay, so you fully vaccinated your kids. You just happened to space things out a little bit so they didn't get quite so many vaccines on the same day. Their their bodies were able to um, respond to less at a time. And that's your viewpoint. Everything's great. And then you just happen to run into this and go, hold on, what's going on? At that point, if I understand, you were motivated to really dive into the question of um, all these studies and what's going on with the potential link. And from that, we have this book. Right. I'm convinced that there was uh, repeated instances of misleading science, uh, call it fraud, repeated data analysis over and over and over again until the uh, association between vaccine and autism could be made to go away. There's plenty of evidence on that. And But evidence of fraud is not sufficient for me to know how or why vaccines may cause autism or how or why other factors might contribute to autism. Mm -hmm. And so it it has become kind of vogue to talk about the genetics of autism. There was more and more news stories coming out, more and more genes. They had found hundreds of genes that were associated in some way, some vague way with autism. And so I wanted to dive into the deep science and then communicate it in a way that I thought that, you know, the general public, pediatricians, politicians, policymakers might be able to reach the science. So the book is actually an attempt to bring all those 2,000 research studies uh, and what's known from their review to the public in a manner in which they, you know, should have a reasonable grasp of uh, biology from high school biology. Mm-hmm. Uh, but people who read it say that it's a dense read, it's full of information, but they are, they are understanding it. Right, right. So Dr. Stephanie Seneff, Senior Research Scientist at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, that's MIT, says this book is a Bible for anyone who wants to understand the deep science behind the autism epidemic in America. So we need to be clear, when I was born in 1972, about 1 in 10,000 children were dealing with autism. Right, and if you if you look at the science, people say it's just better diagnosis or increased diagnosis, but if you look at the scientific studies that have been conducted, yes, the change in diagnosis now that happened many years ago, mm-hmm. 
many, many years ago, the DSM-4 to 5, right. did change the way that we diagnose autism, and it may have added a percentage to the recognition of autism in some people. Mm-hmm. But it does not explain 100%, even close. It doesn't explain any of that. Um, there's a study by Nevison from Colorado, Dr. Nevison. She looked at it, and she found that exposure to environmental toxins, uh, aluminum in vaccines, and diagnosis were the top three explanations. And so, mm-hmm. first of all, you know, the dialogue that we have to have as a society is we have to move away from either or. Right. It doesn't have to be... Well, yes, there's some that's due to increased diagnosis, and therefore vaccines are exonerated. That that doesn't follow logically at all. Mm-hmm. Right. It's sort of like saying a few people who get lung cancer happen to be working in the fire department. They've never smoked cigarettes, or it's asbestos caused, therefore cigarettes are exonerated. Right. So we have, yeah. we have changes in diagnosis, and the rates continued to increase after they changed the diagnosis. Well, and it hasn't slowed down. They're uncertain. The CDC's last statistics... Uh, was one in 68. This is data from four years ago. The data from eight years ago, it was one in 68. But they say that the confidence interval on one in 68 now is so uncertain, they can't determine whether it's increasing or decreasing. So there's just, it's very, very, very vague. I'm wondering where I'm getting that one in 58. Maybe I just got the number wrong. In, in Mississippi, uh, the most highly vaccinated state in the country with mandates and no philosophical or religious exemptions, the rate's at least one in 50. Uh, in, in some areas, in some school districts, it's even higher. We're dealing with updated statistics where people are saying that it may be as high as 1 in 50 if you look at the statistics ahead of time. We're mm-hmm. looking at data from four years ago when we cite the CDC. Right, right, right. All right, I'm going to take a second. We're going to come back to this book and maybe like the top two or three things in this book that you specifically want to make sure um, that we get a chance to share with our listening audience. They can always go find the book. And as you say, it's a dense read, but I want to make sure we touch in on those things. But first, I'm going to remind everyone that um, you are currently listening to Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. My name is March Twisdale, producer and host of this show, and I'm having a great time talking with James Lyons-Weiler, um, who I will call Jack during the show. And um, before we return to the interview here on Voice of Ashon, I would like to give a shout-out to those folks who allow our radio station to exist. We are supported by so many wonderful people here on Vashon. For example, support for this program comes from Vashon Center for the Arts, a center for the arts on Vashon Island. VCA provides quality arts experiences for all ages and creates opportunities for artists to perform and exhibit their work. Find out what's happening at VashonCenterForTheArts.org. Support also comes from the Vashon Loop, Islanders' alternative newspaper, offering free news, information, arts, and entertainment from the people since 2001. It's your chance to get into the loop at VashonLoop.com. Okay, so I have so many friends who choose to use vaccines for their children. They want the benefits that they um, hope to get from vaccines, and yet at the same time, they are comfortable with the idea of people doing unique approaches to their medical care. And then there are um, some people who really feel like no one should be stepping outside the lines of the CDC recommended guidelines. Everyone should do what the government has told us is the best thing to do. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts are about that. Given that the CDC fudged and cooked data in so many studies to try to convince the AMA, to try to convince the FDA, to try and convince the IOM, they literally removed results 
from PowerPoint presentations that existed in the PowerPoint presentations before the PowerPoint presentations were given by Frank DiStefano to the IOM. Mm -hmm. Given that CDC, the vaccine team at CDC, has gone to great lengths to remove and erase any sign of autism from the so-called science that they did, I have no faith or confidence that the CDC understands the risks of the current schedule at all. And so, unfortunately, I, I don't like the term anti-vaccine. I think it's designed to polarize. It's designed to ramp up the manufactured taboo over talking about risks of vaccines. Um, there should be no taboo about talking about any medical procedure. So to get to the core of the question, we have a lot of work to do. Ask the question, is there a safe way to, to use the number of vaccines that CDC has said is okay? The, the members of the ACIP committee, this is the uh, advisory committee that tells CDC basically what's okay to add to the schedule, are rife with conflicts of interest. Mm -hmm. They have research funding from pharmaceutical companies. They have personal interests in pharmaceutical companies. Some of them have owned patents on vaccines that they worked to get approved. And as you can see where I'm coming from with an institute that's not interested in profit whatsoever, I can see where it doesn't have to be that way at all. So we have a lot of questions that have to be asked, and that's what science allows us to do is rationally and uh, with, with being thoughtful and careful about the nature in which we do science, the hows of how we do science, ask the right questions and ask them the right way. Right, right. I know it's really interesting. It's There is supposedly, I think it's on Earth Day, there is a science march that's being planned, you know, in D.C. and around the country or something. And on one hand, I'm really sort of, I think that's awesome. Like, for example, medical doctors as an arena of science are some of the most gagged individuals in the United States when it comes to certain issues like this. They literally cannot say certain things without running the risk of losing their job um, or being, you know, harassed. So, you know, I see, I'm really glad to see scientists, um, doctors, and other people come up and join together and look around like we did during the Women's March and say, I'm not alone. But at the same time, I'm a little bit hesitant. I'm expecting to see signs that will say, I believe in science, which to me is this tremendous oxymoron. This, you know, I'm like, no, you don't believe in science. Science is a method of approaching how we try to understand what's going on and evaluate what's happening around us. And, you know, so what do you have to say sort of about this new mantra of I believe in science, which almost feels like the, um, so I don't need to think about it much or worry about it or pay attention. I'll just trust and believe what that person says. So science is a way of knowing. And if science was something that was something we could have faith in and believe in, then it would be a religion. And we don't need a religious marriage of our policies to science per se. What we need is objective and good science that is open-ended. All questions are on the table. It's okay mm -hmm. to ask any question, regardless of what the outcome is going to be, uh, and show all of your results. It's like doing your math in school. How did you derive the result? If you only show the results that you want the public to see because it fits your policy, well, that's not science. And so what's happened really with regulatory capture, and that's where muddied interests like pharmaceutical companies have undue influence over regulatory agencies, they imbue such a bias on what they call science that it's unrecognizable to me as science. So do, do I have faith and confidence that science as a process of a way of knowing 
is something that we should keep around? Yes, absolutely. But I also know that every generation of scientists wrote peer-reviewed publications, wrote books and everything else, and we look back at those and we say what they knew then is incomplete compared to what we know now. What they knew then was wrong compared to what we know now. And so science is an approach to the truth, but science can't provide the truth. Right. Right. And what we know now, people in the future will look back and say that was right and that was not quite right enough. Correct. Yeah. And so uh, the, the approach that I took in the book was not to – I didn't write the book to show that vaccines cause autism. What I did was I downloaded 3,000 articles, mm-hmm. peer-reviewed research studies on autism, and then I structured them and categorized them into topics that I thought would make an interesting book about autism. And some of the best feedback that I have – I said 3,000, I ended up reading 2,000, and I cite 1,000. Mm-hmm. Some of the best feedback that I have was from a, a, a dad of a child with autism, and he said that he's read 20 books on question of autism and vaccines, uh, the question of, of autism in general, and that he, he says that now that he's read my book, he understands autism. Mm-hmm. He understands not just what causes autism, but he understands autism. And mm-hmm. that was a big commendation for me. I felt so good about that. Yeah. Well, especially given that he, I mean, if you could read 20 books on the subject and feel like you're reading the same thing written by a different author. Your book is different from a lot of what's out there because, as you say, it's so um, uh, source-driven. Is that the way to say it, maybe? Right. So, it's obje- yes, it's source-driven and it's objective. I didn't cherry-pick. You see, when the, when the, when the, when the CDC testifies to Congress, and, they ha- and as they have in the past, they'll say that there's been dozens of studies or you know, there's dozens of studies that show that there's no link between vaccines and autism, but those do- and that there's no credible science that shows that vaccines could cause autism in any way. I hear this, and I hear it repeated all the time, that there is no science that shows vaccines cause autism. Right. They're only then citing the couple dozen of studies, really, 17 of which were rejected by the Institutes of Medicine as, as having su- such great flaws in them that they couldn't be relied upon, leaving five studies that the IOM based its decision on a, on a critical report to say that there's no link between vaccines and autism, three of which now are under fire mm-hmm. or being fraudulent. So, you know, yeah. we're down to two studies that support the claim that there's no science be, that shows vaccines and autism and the meta-analyses. These are a special kind of study that, that, that combines all the results of all the studies. They actually use the data from these flawed studies that IOM said were flawed and the fraudulent studies from CDC. Mm-hmm. And so the meta-analysis studies that say that they considered millions of patients, those are absolutely corrupted, uh, not in, a, in an intentional way, but they're, cor- they're polluted with results from, from bad studies that are right. underpowered, overcooked, and so on. Right, right. And then the real studies that are not happening are the, well, I believe they still, there still has not been any study um, at all that has uh, compared um, vaccinated and non-vaccinated populations. Is that true? We're still lacking that? We're, we're, we're lacking uh, that done in an objective and an independent manner, right. yes. So the entire schedule has not been compared to individuals who have no vaccine whatsoever. There's a, all the studies that are done are always kind of one-off from that. And the argument that we're given is that, well, it's so unethical to not vaccinate individuals that we could never do that kind of study, and yet there are plenty of families that don't vaccinate. Um, right. Now, the, the, the 2,000 studies that I cited, there many of them are kind of correlational studies that the CDC said didn't exist, basically. They, they, they said, okay, we've got our two dozen studies, right. of which 17 were flawed, and there's no other credible science. So they dismissed the studies that did find association 
And then they dismissed the 2,000 other studies that showed exactly how vaccines and other toxins in the environment could reasonably be plausibly induce autism in some people. And so by rejecting 99.99% of the science, we're basing it on basically two studies. And so I felt really compelled then to write a book that described everything that's known about autism, right? the speech and language and communication, things that are going on with autism to the repetitive motions and the cognitive, what's going on cognitively, the sensory topics are there, how the immune system is related to autism mm-hmm. and the development and the gastrointestinal factors in autism and so on. So I, I wrote a book about autism from the scientific perspective, allowing myself to be unbiased, and where vaccines were shown to play a role, I, I made it clear that highly plausible or not plausible. Right. There's um, a study that came out of UC Davis, I think about a year and a half ago, and they were showing that the, uh, I don't know, the rate of autism was significantly higher in communities that were in farming areas that were heavily um, basically contaminated with um, various pesticides and things like that, right. you know, and yet what you hear actually is you don't hear even a couple dozen studies. What you hear from the media is, oh, well, there are 500 studies done and they all conclusively said there's no link. Therefore, it's not an issue. You know, close, just draw that curtain closed and don't look behind that curtain because there's nothing there. Correct. So the the study that you are citing found that the closer one lives to agriculture areas that use pesticides, the the higher the incidence of autism. There's also studies that show that the more access that patients have to health care, the more likely they are to have autism. Now, is that because they're more likely to be diagnosed or is that likely because they're uh, more likely to be fully vaccinated. Right. One can't answer the question just by reading the studies. One has to then say, okay, well, we we need to tease that apart. Right. Uh, there are other factors like roadside aluminum dust. The more aluminum dust that a, a child is exposed to, the higher the risk that they're going to be diagnosed with autism. Aluminum is a neurotoxin. Right. Uh, we use aluminum hydroxide in vaccines as a, as an adjuvant. And when they took mercury out because of the public outcry about injecting thimerosal, into infants, which was a correct thing to do, but they'll never say that, they'll never admit that they did it because they knew that it was causing a problem, mm-hmm. even though they have science that they never published that showed it was a problem. Uh, the thimerosal itself is a, is a terrible uh, toxin. And my research, by looking at the studies, I found a study that reported that what people claim about ethyl mercury being more dangerous than thimerosal is reversed because the clearance studies that showed that apparently thimerosal, uh, ethyl mercury, which is the form uh, in thimerosal, uh, cleared from the body of animals faster than the methyl mercury, which is like thermometer mercury, that it wasn't clearing from the, they only measured, the, those studies only measured the serum and they measured urine. But if you look at the tissue compartmentalization, the ethyl mercury was actually not, it was clearing from the serum faster because it was ending up in the brain. It was ending up in other organs. And so what right. people, when people say, oh, no, the, the mercury that was in vaccines wasn't dangerous to begin with, they're absolutely misinformed. So, wait, wait, so when they're studying forming. the – when they were looking at what was coming out in the urine and they were saying, oh, look, you know, there's hardly nothing there, they perceived that to mean it's clearing, but it actually meant that it was being held on to in other parts of the body? 
Yeah, they, the, the clearance studies were absolutely uh, misleading, and so uh, Thomas Burbacker did a very good study. Now, when it comes to aluminum, you know, there are people that will say aluminum's not a, not not a toxin, but it's if you take any, even a cursory look at the research studies, if you go to PubMed, uh, which is the National Center for Biotechnology Information's aggregation of all the abstracts of all the research studies, and you type in aluminum neurotoxicity, you find hundreds and hundreds of studies on not only aluminum neurotoxicity, but how to abrogate it, aluminum neurotoxicity. Right. So if there's a medical doctor that says that aluminum's not a neurotoxin, uh, they're misinformed and or just misinforming people. Right. Aluminum in the vaccines are picked up by macrophages. These are the white blood cells. And they make their way through cerebral spinal fluid and other routes to the brain or in, proximate, in proximity to the brain. Once into the brain, uh, the aluminum disrupts specialized cells called astrocytes. The astrocytes uh, have a specific job. They're not like nerve cells, a typical nerve cell where you're making these connections and so on. The astrocytes actually mop up a substance called glutamate. Everybody knows MSG, monosodium glutamate. Right. The same. Uh, it mops up glutamate from the brain because glutamate is a, a chemical. It's, a, it's an amino acid that, that causes other specialized cells called microglia to be activated because there's an infection or there's an injury. So if you have a traumatic brain injury or if you have a stroke, the microglia become activated, and they will tear apart the broken parts of the cell. They'll fight against bacteria. You know, they'll engulf bacteria. They'll cause cells to burst and so on. These microglia stay activated in the presence of glutamate. So with a chemical disruption of, of astrocytes from uh, the, the, the toxins in, in vaccines, then we see that uh, glutamate levels and chronic microglial activation is present in the brains of autistics uh, for because decades. those, because the um, the first one you were talking about, the it starts with an A. Astrocytes. So those guys, you were saying, they basically mop up the extra glutamate. Then they're damaged. They can't do that. You get too much glutamate, which basically creates almost like a constant autoimmune condition in the brain. Exactly, and it's not wow. it's not adaptive immunity. It's not the type of immunity that we you know our immune systems fight off the common cold. It's right. innate. And this is very well known, very well characterized. I was surprised by how well characterized it was uh, in the literature. And yet we see medical doctors saying that aluminum is fine, the, the doses of aluminum are fine. When you look at the pediatric schedule, mm -hmm. on the first day of birth, a baby gets 250 micrograms of aluminum in the hepatitis B right. vaccine. But if, if you're administering that same type of aluminum through another route, through a saline bag, an adult's only supposed to get five micrograms. When a vaccine is approved because it's considered to be, um, quote, we can get into the quote, safe and effective, what that legally means compared to what the average American thinks it means, because it has a very specific legal definition. But um, when they say it's safe and effective, aren't they always basing that upon its injection into like a 150-pound man or something? Right. So the FDA has a limit of 850 micrograms in vaccines for adults, but that's based on the ability to create an immunogenetic response. It is not based on safety studies. And the only safety studies that are available that were relied on at all are really, you know, adult dietary models of mice and rats. And so they're not even injecting it. The, the, the safe, safety levels of aluminum in vaccines are not based on you would think that they would take rats, uh, baby, and they're not based on baby rats with developing brains, and that they would inject them. So the scientists that do that kind of study, like Chris Shaw, uh, Yehuda Schoenfeld, they find adverse events in the mice, 
but the actual policies have not been changed as a result of the science that's been done by these by these scientists. And, and then you take that vaccine that was approved for the 150-pound man, not based upon a safety study, but based upon an effectiveness study, and then you say we'll give seven of them to a 14-pound baby. Correct. And and you end up with you know terrible excitotoxicity uh, and other problems. The, the the routes of toxicity of aluminum are it's pernicious. There are many different ways that it that it harms cells, right. and uh, it stays for years, years right. and years and years. So it has a half life of seven years. And we're right now recalculating the accumulations and at the Institute for Pure and Applied Knowledge. We're, we're doing the, the, the math. What would happen if you take the so-called level of 850 micrograms uh, and you project it back based on the body weight of the baby? What's an acceptable level? They don't even do that. They, they'll, they'll, they, they do combined vaccines of 1,250 know, micrograms right. in, one shot, in, in one day. So in terms of the causes of autism, I just told you about astrocytes. Well, right. people say... But wait a minute, what about the genetic data? The book is also about genetics. Right, yes. A key part of my, my finding is that if you have a mutation in a glutamate receptor in an astrocyte, either because you inherited that mutation or because you have a, a new mutation that mom and dad don't have, it's called a de novo mutation, you can have the same exact effect. If your astrocytes don't work, then the number of times that microglial get activated over the course of childhood Due to you know fever or cold you know uh, you know injury or, or so on just banging your head, you can end up with ex what's called excitotoxicity just because the astrocytes aren't working. Whatever does whatever stops the astrocytes from working, right. can then cause autism and autism develop neurodevelopmental disorders because of the excess glutamate. And then there's other channels by which uh, we can see autism develop that don't involve astrocytes like mitochondrial dysfunction. Well, you can get mitochondrial dysfunction either from a mutation or from environmental factors. And aluminum adheres to the membranes of mitochondria, altering their function. And so, you know, it's not either or. And sometimes there would be a genetic and environmental interaction. And none of the studies that have been conducted so far have at, the, the, the genetic studies have at, bothered to add environmental factors in. I say in the book that uh, geneticists are doomed to find genes, and they have found over 800. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> well, that's, that, that's all you're going to find, right? Right. <laughs> look for your keys. You've lost your keys, and you're going yeah. to look under the, the street light because that's where the light is. Right. Um, they're going to find genes. And so one of the important things that I recognize, given my background in molecular biology, my knowledge of biological pathways, is that not all these genes are autism genes. Mm -hmm. A few of them are autism genes where, you listen, if you get two or three mutations in a synaptic protein, you're trying to create nerve cell signaling and you can't do it because your synapses are broken, right. you can have genetic autism. Well, so, real, so okay, because we're going to run out of time, so I think... What I'd like to do is ask real quick, make, I want to make sure um, for those of you who are listening today to my interview with James Lyons-Weiler, um, who I'm calling Jack for the interview, it's called Mother is sort of how people pronounce it, but it's, it's MT. You, you know what it is, so just tell us what that is real quick. You're talking about methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase, MTHFR. Right, right, right. Okay. That's one where I think you need a double recessive, correct, for it to fully play out? It's, it's, it's funny because there are different types of mutations. Mm -hmm. uh, people with MTHFR mutations, uh, some of the mutations, they can't process folic acid, which is an artificial type of folate. Instead, they should have methylfolate. Mm -hmm. But there's one mutation that, oddly enough, uh, individuals require folic acid to be able to have proper access to folic, folate. So 
there are hundreds of genes that have mutations. Mm-hmm. Very few of them are autism genes. The second category of genes that, I, that I've placed the genes into, the proteins, are environmental susceptibility genes. Mm-hmm. These are genes that you have your variation in, and you, you're less able to tolerate toxins in the environment. Right. Some of those mutations are new mutations, not found in mom and dad, and we don't know why. 20% of autistics have increased copy number variations. Mm-hmm. And we don't know why. And we, one, of the, one of the scientists I told you about, uh, uh, Dr. Ted Fogarty and I, are working on the hypothesis that perhaps uh, indiscriminate use of ultrasound or indiscriminate use of pelvic CT scans and other forms of radiation might actually be increasing mutations in some of the germline cells for some parents of autistics, and therefore they're more, that, that would explain a lot of the familial risk. Mm-hmm. That would explain a lot of, of why there seems to be a higher number of variations mutational variations, and when the mutations involved proteins that prevent these people from being able to detoxify their cells from any toxin, it would explain why pesticides and and aluminum and mercury and all these things seem to be a risk factor across the board for people for autism. So right now, if you're in um, various Facebook chat groups or whatever, um, say those four letters for me again. MTHFR. Okay, so MTHFR is something that a lot of people do talk about, and the reason is because they can actually go out and do testing on themselves, and they get it checked. And so one of the things that comes out a lot is you've got mom and dad, grandparents, and everyone seems to have always sort of not responded well to vaccines, but no one ever got super, super sick. And then a kid comes along in that family line, and bam, you've got the stereotypic, you know, um, regressive autism outcome. And then they go and they check and they find out that, you know, mom, dad, and whatever have maybe one recessive and the kid got both. And so a lot of people are bringing up the idea that a really important way for us to use knowledge to improve safety and to reduce harm is if you can do pre-testing sometimes to check ahead of time to see if a person is at greater risk. And there are other situations in the world of medicine where we check to see if someone is at greater risk of this or that intervention before we choose to do it to them. Um, I mean, every time you're going to have surgery, they take blood and they double check to make sure that you don't have certain things going on that would you know, cause you to have a problem in the middle of the surgery. So that's one that I think is important for people who are not paying attention to the issue or who have just decided that it's all a nicely sewn up answer, um, that there's ongoing increasing science evidence and amazing stuff being discovered, even if you're not hearing about it on your primetime news. And the millions of Americans around you who are dealing every day with this issue and living with their children for decades who are never going to fully develop at all into self-sufficient individuals, they're learning these things. And it's really actually fascinating at the same time that it's tragedy. Yes. Uh, I was involved in the Early Detection Research Network at the National Cancer Institute developing biomarkers to allow us to determine which cancer patients would respond to which treatments. Uh, So the the future of autism research and the future of artificial immunization involves screening uh, to make sure that people with specific sets of mutations, not the general SNPs, not the uh, 23andMe type of variation, but rather specific genes that prevent people from having the ability to properly detoxify uh, from, from toxins, 
that that is coming, and right. it's going to take a lot of work, and it's coming. But also, part of what we've discovered is that um, vaccines have proteins in them that match human proteins perfectly. Mm-hmm. And so, if you have an adjuvanted vaccine, one with aluminum, and oh. you're you're getting the immune system excited, yep, and your immune system can't tell the difference. Between it, it's a process. It's a, right. a thing called molecular mimicry, where the protein's the same in the human versus the virus in the vaccine or the pathogen in the vaccine, and the immune system attacks basic myelin protein. It can attack your thyroid. It can attack the cells in your pancreas and induce diabetes. Right. This type of autoimmunity the, could be the, the rise in autoimmune disorders across the board could be explained by the fact that they're not screening for these epitopes. Mm-hmm. They screen these epitopes out of the vaccines starting next year. We should see a, a dramatic drop. We looked at the Zika virus uh, proteins and we found matches that we then communicated to people involved in the vaccine development to make sure that they screened them out. Mm-hmm. They didn't write back to us, unfortunately, but um, you know, right. the, the knowledge is there. And we can do something about this. Well, so there's not just, you know, for people to say vaccines do not pose a risk across the board and do not cause autism, they're ignoring the fact that people with these mutations are an identifiable subset, a minority of our population. They should be protected Mm -hmm. because they're identifiable. They really are carrying the weight. They're they're bearing the cost of all of our benefit from vaccines. Right. And we owe them everything. If yeah. vaccines are as effective as as we say that they are at preventing uh, mortality and morbidity, and 30 million lives are saved and so on, and these these families that that have these injured kids, we owe them everything. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know what's interesting? Yes, yes, that's a really brilliant way to look at it. But another way, and this brings me back to what you brought up at the very beginning about how your institute specifically wants to be um, free from the corruption of of moneyed interests and whatnot, if we can manage to create these this big, giant um, system that puts out vaccines to all of these people at all these times in order to achieve this positive goal, every newborn, of course, there's been a pushback because of injuries, and so it doesn't happen everywhere. But if you can inject every imbo- uh, newborn with what the vitamin K and the Hep B? Why can we not? We already take blood from most um, newborns to check their hematocrit level. I think is what we're checking. But why right. not go ahead and take a little bit of blood from every infant across the board and check for these things? And then you come back and guess, hey, guess what? You're going to need to go see those pediatricians who have the specialized schedule or they're going to give you advice because your kid has a unique marker. Oh, your kid doesn't. You're probably going to be okay. You know, still make your own decision, but you don't have a big red warning flag above you. All the medical exemption, right? So the genetic screening, but there's also other biomarkers that we can test for in the blood. So mothers of autistics tend to have anti-brain antibodies. And autistics tend to have anti-brain antibodies. And so moms can be tested. Just take a blood draw from mom and see if they have anti-brain antibodies. Mm -hmm. If so, then you really don't want to activate her immune system uh, during pregnancy. So vaccination during pregnancy is a really bad idea anyway. Half of the proteins in the baby's body come from their father. And there will be genetic differences between mother and father. 
And so you're very likely right. to see when there's an abrogation of the placenta, uh, you know, if there's leakage of the immune system one way over the other, mm-hmm. uh, th- then then we can see a, a very serious problem, disrupted development. Right, 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 exactly. But once again, let's finish then with the last point that we wanted to cover today, which was how to engage with not just politicians, but more importantly with our fellow Americans, our family members, our teachers, our doctors. How do we engage on this issue with compassion so that we can normalize the conversation again? Nobody probably can be in agreement that the level of hostility that has been, as you say, artificially manufactured around this issue is appropriate to a scientific topic or healthy. So how would you recommend people approach this with compassion? Well, part of it is to recognize that people who are vaccine risk aware are not automatically against vaccines. Um, I'm not against artificial immunization by any means. And and yet people label me as anti-vax because I dare talk about vaccine safety. We have to have rational, careful, you know, considerate, respectful conversations about what's happening to some people in our society because they're... Listen, every parent that I know who has a vaccine-injured child was pro-vax. They bought their kid to be vaccinated. There's not a single parent that I know that has an autistic child who said that they regressed that was against vaccine at the time. They learned the hard way. Uh, I believe that we need to reboot entirely our public health valuation of perspectives on immunization and, and neurodevelopmental. You know, there's a spectrum of vaccine risk awareness. Right. And wherever you sit on the vaccine risk awareness on any given day, some of we have we have people who want bans on vaccines. Those are complete, you know, self-identified so-called anti-vax people. To call anybody else anti-vax who's trying to talk with you, simply trying to talk with you or ask questions about vaccines, is a slur. Mm-hmm. Especially after they've self-identified. So, like, you know, R.F. Kennedy Jr. is vilified in the press as being anti-vaccine. Well, he has stated his own personal position on it. He's not Mm anti-vax. Continue that mythology. It does a disservice to the human being that lives and exists as Bobby Kennedy. All right. Now, this this vaccine risk awareness spectrum goes all the way from anti-vax all the way down to the marketing departments at at pharmaceutical companies. Right. Right. And if CDC and other regulatory agencies are so convinced that they need to do the marketing job of pharmaceutical companies, then we need to take a close look at that business relationship. Mm-hmm. Is it appropriate that members of the CDC can own patents on vaccines? Is it appropriate that the members of the advisory committee can do that? And it is, a, is it appropriate that the a director of the CDC, Julie Gerberding, left CDC after overseeing the debacle of uh, the William Thompson affair? Right. Then, and the, um, the and the confirmation of Gardasil onto the schedule, right? And then get a job at, uh, Merck. at Merck. Is that is that something we can tolerate in, in our society that we have this revolving door between pharmaceutical companies and the regulatory agencies? Our people need to recognize that the people don't run the government right now. The corporations run the government agencies, right. and so we need to undergo regulatory recapture for all the right reasons. Right. As you said earlier, everyone who is dealing with, um, you know, autism and they were supportive of vaccines, wanted to use vaccines in their families. But one of the things that 
it happens a lot and people don't necessarily understand this is that you have advance warning many times. Um, there's a woman on the island, you know, the nine month vaccine child has a pretty strong reaction and all they say is, oh, well, you know, don't worry about it. Go right back at 12 months. Another reaction stronger this time. Oh, well, don't worry about it. Go back at 15 months. Kids in the hospital, regressive yeah. autism. And the thing is that if if we had an open conversation about this as in, you know, I don't know, Viagra. I'm using Viagra. Gee, I had a bad night. Things didn't go well. Maybe I won't use Viagra again. But, you know, it's like you have a bad night with your kid and you're just told, nope, everything's normal. Come back in three months. And you ignore that very clear warning sign, a tragedy. What the public needs to understand is that pediatricians are not taught about vaccine risk in medical school. That needs to change. Right. Know nothing about vaccine risk. What the public needs to understand, American Academy of Pediatrics specifically coaches doctors, pediatricians, to diminish the concern over vaccine risk. And if anybody asks you about vaccine risk, change the topic to efficacy, the, 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 how well it works. And that is formally a denial of informed consent. Mm -hmm. If a parent is asking any pediatrician about the risks of vaccines, that parent is entitled in 48 out of 50 states to deny the vaccine, to say no thank you, based on truly informed consent. And when they bias the perception of risk and do nothing to minimize the actual risk, it's no different than telling a child, go ahead and cross the street, and doing nothing to make sure that, the, that, the, that there's no cars in the, in the street. Mm -hmm. If medical doctors across the board are being told to uh, deny medical care to parents who ask too many questions about vaccine risk, that's a denial of informed consent. And by my understanding of the law, it's, it's breaking the law in two ways. First of all, it's breaking the law because for any medical procedure, you're entitled to know what the risks and benefits are. And if your medical doctor performs a medical procedure upon you or your child without telling you the risks, they've broken the law. Number mm -hmm. two, vaccines are a large, a huge clinical trial. They use aftermarket. Vaccines are not studied like drugs. They use aftermarket, post-market surveillance retrospective studies, so they look, they put the vaccines out on the market, and then they see what happens to people. That's a clinical trial by any definition. You are entitled under regulations and rules in the federal government to know that you're involved in a clinical trial. Right. And if they don't tell you you're in a clinical trial, they've broken the law. Now, they just passed in the 21st Century Cures Act I a know. clause yeah. that says that you can be, uh, they can enroll you in a clinical trial if they determine that the risk is small. Right. But how can they know that the risk is small before the, the trial has been conducted? So right. I can see no circumstances where legally the 21st Century Cures Act clause can actually be implemented to justify uh, uh, continued experimentation on the population with vaccines, the safety margin of which is, you know, unknown and uh, questions, uh, there, our perception of risk is manipulated down to nothing to the point where right now they're saying there are no risks to vaccines. When in science is anything that black and white? Well, I just want to say that I really appreciate that you have spent so much of your personal time in your life dedicating yourself to the work that you do that clearly is um, going to empower people in America and around the world to continue to move forward to um, a place of better understanding and then hopefully better health for all. Thank you so much, March, for helping um, society become aware of 
the benefits and risks. Uh, the big question is, what are we going to do about it? And you seem to be right on target. That's where we're going uh, to develop new biomarkers and risk factors uh, to get people out of harm's way. Yeah, yeah. We, we are smart, and when we use science well and we're not distracted by profit motives and whatnot, it can really benefit us in great ways. So, um, folks, you've been listening to me, March Twisdale, uh, producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. I have been interviewing James Lyons-Weiler, who is a scientist, author, dad, and CEO of the Institute for Pure and Applied Knowledge. Thank you so much, Jack, for joining us today. And um, I just really enjoyed having you on the show. Oh, thank you, March. And I look forward to seeing you when I come there next month. Yeah, yeah. I'll be there on March 11th in Linwood. Um, folks, remember, you can go ahead and if you want to, if you have questions that you want to direct straight to um, James Lyons-Weiler, if you want to talk to him directly, you can actually email him at jim, just J-I-M, at I-P-A knowledge.org. You can also go to ipaknowledge.org, the website, and you can get information here about the upcoming event on March 11th in Linwood, uh, Fully Informed Medicine. And um, then there's jameslyonsweiler.com. I'm going to spell that out real quick. James is obvious. L-Y-O-N-S-W-E-I-L-E-R.com. If you missed it, Go to my website, marchtwisdale.com, and go ahead and just click on his interview, and you can scroll to the end there and pull that information back up again. So basically, uh, thank you very much, and now I'm going to leave all of you with the timely and inspirational song, We Are the Many, created by musical activist, Makana. Come here and gather round the stage The time has come for us to voice our rage Against the ones who've trapped us in a cage To steal from us the value of our wage From underneath the vestiture of law The lobbyists at Washington do not at liberty, the bureaucrats guffaw And until they are purged, we won't withdraw We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the offices of you Till you do The bidding of the many, not the few Our nation was built upon the right Of every person to improve their plight The laws of this republic they rewrite And now a few own everything in sight They own it free of liability they own that they are not like you and me Their influence dictates legality 
Then until they are stopped, we are not free. We'll occupy the streets, we'll occupy the courts, we'll occupy the offices of you till you do. The bidding of the many, not the few. Force your monopolies with guns While sacrificing our daughters and sons But certain things belong to everyone Your thievery has left the people none So take heed of our notice to redress We have little to lose, we must confess Your empty words to leave us unimpressed The growing number join us in protest We occupy the streets, we occupy the courts We occupy the offices of you till you do Bidding of the many, not the few. You can't divide us into sides, and from our gaze you cannot hide. Denial serves to amplify. Our allegiance you can't buy Our government is not for sale The banks do not deserve a bail We will not reward those who fail We will not move till we prevail We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the offices of you Till you do The bidding of the many, not the few We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the offices of you Till you do